0: Welcome to the panel, RNZ National, cast Carter and David Cormack with me today. Now, rain continuing to hammer several parts of the country. That does include Nelson still uh, continuing to fall there. The Mai tai River, which runs through parts of the centre of town, broke its banks. Uh, several hundred Nile Street residents were evacuated but were able to return to check their home. And roughly 20% of the homes assessed in the Nelson-Tasman district have been either yellow or red stickered. Three hundred and eight houses have now been evacuated across the district since the severe weather came in yesterday. With us is Nikki Van Ash, whose Nile Street home backed on to the Maitai River. Nikki, welcome to the panel. Hi, Wallace. How are you? Thanks so much for being with us. How did your house fare, Nikki?
1: Um. Well, <laughs> I feel like it's a wee bit early to say so yeah. far, but um, we. To this point, I've been pretty lucky from what I know. I've just tried to go back and visit now. Um, our, our house is fine. Um, our garage has had a bit of water in it, and the um, backyard is, yeah got about a foot of silt in it now, so a um, oh. bit of clean-up to do there. But so far, the water stayed at bay from the house.
0: And so you stayed uh, overnight somewhere else? You, you left the home yesterday?
1: Yes' we've got um some small children, so yeah. it might be better to get out there and just start packing up, we had a knock on the door and have to leave so we um you know had lots of lovely friends that have been really generous with offers, but um, we um, made ourselves at home in a central city in a boardroom in my
0: husband's office. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's extraordinary. I know this area very well, Nikki. I used to live for some years in Hardy Street, right next to the Mai Tai River. About really about um, you know just just a few meters away. Um, I'm looking at the pictures and images. Completely gobsmacked. I have never seen the river breach its banks like this. This, you know, fairly average uh, river running through the city. Have you seen it this high? No, I'm with
1: you, Wallace. It's, um, yeah, it, it's quite a, a shocking sight. Such familiar parts of town, just um, almost, you know, hard to recognise because they're just underwater Um no, I've never seen it so high. We've lived in our property about six years now,
0: and um, yeah, this is the first for us. Yeah. So, in terms of the future, Nikki, you know, uh, is is it food for thought? I mean, the mayor said, "Look, this is a one in a hundred-year flood," but now you know that the Mai Tai can break its banks and quite significantly. Has uh, that sort of planted something in your mind about what Nelson needs to do?
1: Um. I think I think it, it would be impossible for us not to be thinking about those things. Yeah. Um, I think most people are just dealing with the immediate at the moment, but I'm sure there will be lots of questions to ask um, going forward about what this means and what the future holds with climate change um, for residents in areas like that are flooding at the moment.
0: All the best, Nikki. Thank you very much for being with us on the panel.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that. Thanks,
0: Philip. Very good. Uh, it's certainly quite, some of the images coming through
2: casts across the country are really quite something, huh? Yeah, quite Yeah. Quite frightening. Good on, mm. Nikki, for even coming on to talk to us, actually. Mm. Um, it just, it does, I mean, it sounds like it's the worst it's ever been. Um, it just seems that uh, we we knew that things like this were coming, and councils don't seem to have done anything about it that's all I just we're talking about it like it's a surprise but every winter these floods get worse so
3: yeah I mean it's not just councils who haven't done anything about it successive governments haven't done anything about it heads of industry have chosen to go in the direct opposite direction and just continue to pollute and so this is this is on them um and it's really terrible because the people that bear the effects of it are those that can least afford to do it, while those who are mainly responsible for it sit in their ivory towers.
0: Well, on the back of that, the country's largest insurer is building in flood-prone areas has to stop. IAG insures half of households in Aotearoa releasing a three-part plan to try to speed up efforts to reduce flood risk from rivers. It said that climate change was having an enormous impact on the insurance sector and there needed to be simple, practical, concrete actions. A key one being stop building in flood-prone locations and create a document that binds councils to avoid new development or intensification in places with more than a 1 in 50 year flood risk. With with us is Bryce Davies, uh, climate spokesperson for AMI State and NZI. Kia ora, Bryce. Kia ora. Stop building in flood-prone areas. You might have heard Nikki there. I mean, honestly, how many homes in New Zealand would that affect? There must be... Tens of thousands of homes in the country in this predicament, or caught up in this net.
4: Oh yeah, I mean when we when we've done the uh, analysis, you know we've got flooding can occur across New Zealand, right? We've got lots of rivers, lots of towns near rivers, so flooding is quite a widespread, you know, risk for us. But when you look at it, there's about one percent of homes that are at you know, the most severe risk, and so you know that that might be about twenty thousand homes.
0: Ten major floods in the past two years, insured losses, I understand, around $400 million in that time. That's right. Bryce, is this just going to get a lot worse?
4: Well, the first first thing to say is it's not just the financial impact, right? This is, you know, we just look at what's happening in in Westport now. This is the fourth time people are being evacuated in, in 12 months. So... Yeah, we think about the financial costs, but there's, the, you know, the physical impacts on people, there's the emotional strain. You know, that, that's the larger cost we've got to be thinking about. But but you're right, you know, we, we look at that, we look at the development decisions that we make, uh, we think about the impacts of climate change. You know, the number of events and the severity of the events, just, it's just going to get worse. And so we really need to start doing
0: something practical to reduce that risk. Sure, bring our panellists in David Cormack.
3: So correct me if I'm wrong, but historically didn't insurance sort of spread the risk out amongst everyone rather than sort of concentrating responsibility on individual houses or individual development areas?
5: Yeah, well there's
4: a variety, of ways, a variety of ways in which we price and when we think about pricing we're thinking about you know the individual, we're thinking about their property, we're thinking about the environment that that property lives in and so there's a variety of ways in which we price that and it means like everyone's price is pretty much individual
3: so that's always been the case everyone always had individual prices rather than sort of a collective and then spread the risk amongst everyone
4: yeah look no it it has changed and it is continuing to change i mean i think originally you're right it was probably very much what we'd call kind of community rating which is everyone kind of pays the same but the importance of of, of of shifting to, I guess, reflecting the risk a bit more, is that you start to reward and incentivize good risk behaviours. And, and we need people to be making different decisions about about risk.
0: And that's it's not to, just... Uh, uh, just to, I want to jump in there, rewarding good behaviours. I'm just trying to think, you know, you've got some of these places like... <laughs> I'm thinking of Nelson, which I know so well. There is yeah. so much housing stock along the banks of that River Maitai and the, uh, homes that are generations old, uh, what do you mean by good behaviours? I mean, people could be out of their homes. Well,
4: I'm not, not talking about the, the behaviours of um, of those homeowners. I mean, certainly not. I mean, this is the challenge we face with climate change. We, you know, mm. the risks uh, which we once thought were static and manageable, they're changing on us.
3: But uh, it's those homeowners that wear the extreme costs that are now likely to be put in place or sometimes aren't eligible for insurance at all.
4: No, well, so so this is why we're calling for this plan. I mean, we we our intention is to and keep insurance available and affordable, and you know for people exactly like that by the by the Thai River. And to do that, we need to start focusing on on reducing the risk. and And it might be a, there's a range of solutions there. It might be about you know better protecting their homes. Um, and and eventually, all the way up to you know what I think a lot of people find a little difficult to to think about is actually helping them move away to a safer location. Um, but that's the conversation we need to start having.
2: But Bryce, I mean, good good on you for coming up with this plan. It just feels like it's too little, way 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 too late. And it seems to me that councils have have been irresponsible for some time for allowing builds in certain areas. And it's just um, and when you talk about responsibility it feels like like the average homeowner wouldn't have a clue about how climate change was going to affect them or river levels or anything we should have been relying on some of our authorities to understand some of the stuff and explain it to us a long time ago
4: well, yeah, there's, a, there's a huge educational component right you know i, I think the people who are in in, the, in, the, in some of these locations know really well um the risks that they face.
1: um
4: you know, the, the most important thing we can do is, is ensure that people aren't in, in harm's way and, and they don't kind of suffer this loss and this disruption. Um, so we, avoiding these sorts of impacts has got to be the priority. Um, and so, you yeah, know, our job is to provide the insurance um, and, and kind of pay for things when, when things go wrong. And look, we're committed to do that. You know, that's, that's why we're here. Uh, but, you know, the insurance piece is only one part of that component. And, you know, a lot more needs to be done to kind of keep New Zealanders safe from the impacts of flooding. And that's what this plan is trying to
0: do. All right, Bryce, thank you for that. That's Bryce Davies there, climate spokesperson for AMI State uh, and NZI. Lisa says, regarding whose fault the flooding is, it's not on the councils or government. This is Lisa's point of view. It's on every single citizen who votes. We as a population are responsible. Every single person has a choice how they live, who they vote for, and where they buy nah. is uh, what do you reckon? <laughs> straight David? up nah. That's, nah. that's
3: that's a terrible take Lisa I'm sorry that you can't blame the individual like people and who live on the banks of the river there for for what you know petrol companies have been belching out into the atmosphere for the last however many years and no, nah, sorry. No bike,
2: <laughs> Cass. No, I don't no. You, I think that's wrong. I don't think every individual is supposed to understand climate change and what's happening, and be able to see. We rely on specialists in these areas. We rely on our councils and our government to take the advice of specialists in the area instead of ignoring it for a very long time. So, no, I don't. I mean, yes, yeah, sure, we get to vote, but we, that doesn't mean we know all about climate change.
0: Eighteen past four. The panel are NZ National Cass Carter and David Cormack with me today. Six months after Parliament passed the Conversion Practices Prohibition Legislation Act, the Human Rights Commission is establishing a new civil redress process to support survivors of conversion practices. The free, confidential, and impartial dispute resolution process will be managed by Andre Afamasanga. He says that some people who were a victim to a conversion process may not even be aware of it, so, this new system will help them understand what a conversion practice is and make aware of the support available to them. So, with us is Andre Afamasanga. Andre, welcome to the program. Uh,
5: kia ora, Wallace Tala Falaver.
0: Offer and big announcement today. Um, can, can I just um, uh, ask, Andre, you, you yourself were um, a survivor, uh, if you like, of um, conversion therapy.
5: I absolutely was. So I experienced and underwent conversion practices for 15 years uh, in Australia and also in New Zealand. And I use that word survivor quite lightly, actually, because uh, while one might have exited those uh, practices it's a really long tail in terms of the harm and the trauma that uh, one carries around with them. You know, we we talk about COVID and the effects of long COVID. Uh, Surviving conversion practices is exactly like that. You go around your daily life and, you know, it will be little incidental moments that sort of um, remind you that things aren't all well and all good. So it's not uncommon for survivors of these practices to carry around trauma, anxiety, and then, of course, the rainbow community uh, tends to face... um, higher rates of things like depression and even suicidality in comparison with the general population due to stigma and discrimination, and that's absolutely exacerbated by conversion practices.
0: Andre, explain, for those who are listening who might not really know what conversion therapy is, um, just explain what it is.
5: Yeah, so conversion practices are any practice that purports to be able to uh, change someone's sexual orientation or their gender identity uh, or expression. So um, these are practices that can be practiced uh, right across a whole bunch of different settings, whether it might be in a religious church setting. It could be in a medical setting by a clinician. It could also be in a family or a cultural setting. So any sort of beliefs um, that sort of underpin that there's something inherently wrong or broken about being a rainbow person or LGBTIQ and then intends to change uh, the person on the basis of, of who they are. So that's what a conversion practices is. And these practices have been uh, refuted and debunked, and now they're unlawful in New Zealand because they just don't work. They're uh, irrefutably harmful. And some people don't even survive the practices. And unfortunately, in some cases, some people might even take their lives.
0: Let's bring our panel. Uh, let's start with you, David.
3: Oh, look, I, it's real bleak that it took until 2022 to to ban it right like it's just such an horrific thing because it's i mean at its core it's suggesting that there's something to be cured uh if somebody is of a different sexuality and so i it's 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 a horror to me that something like this service needs to exist but i am really grateful that it does is kind of my
0: take All right, stay there Andre. let's bring in um Cass.
2: Yeah, telofa, Andre. Um, I, I just was interested in, um, you said that some people don't realise that they've been subjected to a conversion practice until after the fact, and I just wondered how they don't. I'm just curious.
5: Yeah, it's um, if you take on, don't mean to uh, centre my experience, but it's not an uncommon experience. Uh, so if you, for instance, have been brought up in a religious home or a a conservative home, that uh, there's an ideology that you learn from early on. In my case, I learned even before I was very young, probably five or six, that it was not okay um, to be gay. And so I, I learned that um, not only that I think it was not okay, I actually thought that God didn't want me to, and I believed it was a sin. And so then by the time someone offers conversion practices to you and purports that you can change and that's what God wants for you, um, it becomes a really attractive proposition uh, because the ideology is so ingrained. Um, And that's why you might not know that what you're experiencing is a bad thing. So in my case, I underwent these practices for 15 years, and it wasn't Mm. until I got to the milestone of turning age 40, actually, that I had to really look back and reflect, do these practices work? And because at that time I was a pastor, um, it was a really hard for me uh, thing to accept that actually, not only do they not work, maybe actually this is not uh, potentially God's will. And so indeed there are many people that are going through conversion practices and don't even realise it. So the job right. that we've got here at the Human Rights mm. Commission is to really try to uh, not only prevent these in the future, but actually let people know who are in the midst of these practices that number one, how can we get them to exit these fast, And then more importantly, how can we as a country, as a society, um, ensure that we eliminate these practices and remove um, even um, if, uh, if we can speak to the people that believe these um, practices should exist and make them aware of how harmful those ideologies are, uh, that might be a way that we can all get, be on the same page and realise that this is not a good thing.
0: And so how will this uh, work exactly? This, how, how will this resolution process uh, work?
5: Yeah, so uh, the Commission has always had a free and confidential and impartial uh, complaints and a Disputes Resolution Service. But now, because of the legislation, we can now receive ones around conversion practices. So if you believe that you've experienced a conversion practice, you can call us and we can talk you through the options that are available to you Sometimes that can be uh, early resolution. It might mean that the person on the phone, and by the way, um, staff here are really trained to deal with people from a broad range um, of all backgrounds and people with sensitive human rights issues, that um, it might be that they might be able to, um, you know, do some um, some negotiation on your behalf and maybe speak to some of the people that have have harmed you. Um, If that doesn't work, then we can go to formal mediation. And in formal mediation, there's a number of... um, uh, outcomes that could happen it could be that an apology is issued it could be that someone agrees to go to an education session it could also be financial compensation and maybe a promise that they'll never repeat these practices again and if that doesn't work then um, you know people can even take it all the way through to the human rights review tribunal and they can apply to the office of the human rights proceeding for legal representation.
2: Andre have you got any idea what sort of numbers you're talking about here in terms of people affected?
5: Well there is a dearth of uh, research around the world and that's for a number of reasons that's not because they don't exist I think there is a real stigma um, and there's a real shame if you think of many people um, and this is why in the legislation consent is not a defence to conversion practices because many people like me actually volunteer ourselves so I think um, there is We'll need to get past that and need to make people feel really safe and confident and not ashamed uh, to be able to sort of lodge um, this type of complaint. Um, so we don't know uh, the prevalence. There is a lack of data, uh, but we do hope that uh, part of our job will be to help people to be confident and have the right information that they can access the service. And um, and I think if we do our job well and if all of society also gets that memo and in the, is in the supportive of these Practices um, being banned and and um, continuing to be eliminated, then, um, then then we might get a good picture uh, of, of what what's happening here.
0: Good to have you on, Andre Kia ora. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, that is uh, Andre Afmasanga. Now uh, there's a number to call as well. If you want to c- contact the commission, you can uh, phone them on oh eight hundred. Four nine six eight double seven. That is oh eight hundred four nine six eight double seven. Or email info line at hrc dot co dot That is the Human Rights Commission establishing a new civil redress process to support survivors of conversion therapy practices that was announced uh, just today. It is 27 past four. Lovely to have you uh, with me on the panel today. I'm with Cass Carter and uh, David Cormack. Now, I was very interested in this. Why aren't young people buying fish and chips? A new YouGov poll reports that just 1 in 14 under 25s would choose fish and chips as their favourite takeaway compared with 36% of over 65s you know what young people are buying? well they're buying pizzas so what do we need to do to make fish and chips cool again uh, someone said here in the Rotorua we have fish and chips uh, so a shout out to my own favourite the Tengai Fish Shop cheers Nan Miller an 88 year old retired lower Hutt girl um, I, I, I was stunned by this, uh, David Cormack, because um, I love my fish and chips, and I've just discovered struck gold with a very old-school fish and chippery in Blockhouse Bay Village there. It's been there, what, 20, 30 years? Their fish is fresh, your tarakihi, your girded uh, crispy golden, your chips are dry and beautiful, you've got a bit of tomato sauce, maybe a little bit of mayo... Why don't people like fish and chips anymore, David Cormack?
3: Well, what I'd like to know is if the rates have changed. Like, is it just that young people don't like fish and chips, and as we get old, we do? Uh, and so if you'd gone and done the survey 30 years ago, you'd have got the same results, and that just young people just prefer the taste of, of pizza or Chinese food, which I understand yep. also outranked it. Um Tans and NIO, phenomenal fish and chip place. Highly rate it. Um, Big shout out to them. I don't know. You know, people just like what they
0: like, Wallace. That's fine. We shouldn't Uh, allow that. But I'm just, I'm just. I used to see uh, anecdotally, Cass. I used to see uh, twenty years ago so many people um, enjoying fish and chips. Now you don't see any fish and chips. No, you see pizzas. You see, you see cheap pizzas. Mm. You don't see people opening a wad of um, uh, newspaper or um, greaseproof paper, you're down by the beach, you're having your tomato sauce and your gurnet and
2: your chips. I don't see that anymore. It's sad. No, I know. I live at a beach and our fish and chip shop closed down. It was heartbreaking. What? For you see? Say- Terrible. There's Yep, no, it's awful. But I actually blame people like David Cormack, actually, because yeah. just... Previously, he told us that he has a Google Home and he'd prefer not to move if he could. Uh-huh. So you, there's no drive through for fish and chips. You can sit in your car and drive through for other food, um, including pizzas, but you can't drive yeah. through for um, for fish and chips. And also you have to wait. You know, sometimes you might even wait up to 10 minutes. Outrageous. Outrageous. Exactly. We just don't, That's just far too long. You yeah. see, listen to him. <laughs> no,
3: bugger it. Yeah. I want my Uber Eats delivered unethically to my door. So I want you, the people who deliver it not to be paid properly and I and I want it delivered straight to my door.
2: So how so do you, we make it cool? Well, again. Uh, can't. Uh, su- suggestions,
0: well, suggestions, how do we make uh, how do we make fish and ships great again? This is definitely
3: the most pressing issue of our time. Yeah, absolutely. Well,
0: I, I, I'm with you, Cass. I think it is a, a bit of an issue. I, I actually do like it the, because there's something nostalgic about really quality fish and ships. It speaks of a time that we don't have anymore. more. You know, what you've time's got, that? You've got your uh, mid-70s. You've got your David Cormax. <laughs>
2: mid-70s are the last great Yeah, as soon as that <laughs> tiny
3: Tribunal got made, Wallace, it was all down her <laughs> That's right.
2: uh, no, I, yeah. I, I have to say, though, that fish and chips are having, you know, once or twice done a diet in my life. Fish and chips are the most fattening of all things. No, yeah. act- no, no, that's so, actually, um, no, so during...
3: I actually won't yeah. reveal how I know this information, <laughs> but pizza is actually the worst for I you because okay, well, it's got really and high and... sugar content uh, yeah. inside the yep. dough. Right. So pizza is hands worst. down the worst okay. for you. All right. I can, okay.
0: I can, I can, I can uh, well, let's verify that because we've got an expert uh, on later on who can talk oh, about good. that because okay. we're talking about fasting. But I agree, I think that pizza's worse. I think that a really good um, small portion chips and a nice fish, maybe the odd um, squid ring, uh, beautiful. Anyway, uh, you're on the panel, RNZ National. Now I'm hungry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>